text it to me, and I'll try to get to it afterward, and we'll talk about it. Um, we have two more weeks left in the semester um, talking about the story of Scripture. And as you know, and as I've been putting out there every week, that I'm, what I'm suggesting and what the, Bible, the way the Bible lays itself out is that it is one continuous story from beginning to end. And with that, it has highs and lows, and it has settings and all of that. The setting is called creation, and we talked about that at the beginning of the semester. And then um, kind of the rising action um, is the fall. When, when sin enters the world, when things start to become broken, and relationships start failing, and, and the world is not how it should be, and sin's tentacles reach far into this world and this creation in all sorts of different ways, but then it reaches a climax. The story reaches a climax as we get to the redemption. And that's what we've been talking about for the last three weeks, that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, accomplishes redemption for humanity, and for those who would put their faith in him and trust in him, that, that he actually was the Savior of sinners. But what Jesus does then is he doesn't just leave us at the cross. He doesn't just leave us even at the resurrection. Because the Christian story has a, even a greater ending. It thrusts us into a hope that there will be not just life after death, not just that when we die that we'll escape and be in heaven with God. That will be true. But it'll be more than that, that there is life after life after death. That the Christian, uh, the Christian story talks about the heavens and the, a new heaven and a new earth that will come down. And it will replace the one that is here now. And so we're going to talk about that tonight. Um, and we're going to talk about it through thinking about uh, glory. And that's, what I'm going to, that's the word I'm going to use. You could call it consummation. You could call it eternity. You could call it whatever. I'm going to call it glory. And so um, as we read the scripture tonight and then as we pray, um, let's look and see what this new heaven, this new earth, what this glory will be like. So if you would look down, Revelation chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 8. A uh, quick note before we read Revelation uh, Revelation ten, can be a scary book to read. Um, the first three chapters are pretty straightforward. He's talking to seven churches, and he looks at them, and that's pretty normal. It's readable, even. Um, and he's looking at them saying, look, and, and, and John, the author here, is rebuking these churches for their complacency and for these different things. And then it kind of, from chapter 4 to chapter 20, it's almost like it goes into, it seemingly goes into twilight zone. Right, And there's just stuff going on. There's locusts with lion heads and all sorts of stuff. But look, there's a really easy way to think about Revelation, and it's like this. Jesus wins. That's what the whole book is trying to say. It's telling this story over and over again, seven different ways, actually. It's just kind of repeating itself through lots of different imagery and through apocalyptic imagery and all these things going on that can seem crazy. But the, the bottom line, baseline message is that Jesus wins. Okay, so that's the easiest way to think about it. And we'll see what he wins here in Revelation chapter 21. So let's look at it and read it together. It says, Then I saw, and, and John, uh, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John also writes this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord God, I pray that you would come, that you would afflict those of us who are just comfortable in this life, and that you would comfort those of us who are afflicted in this life. We pray that you would do that by your Spirit in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, as we start to think about this, I want us to think about sporting events. And whether or not you're a sports fan, that's okay, but you'll kind of get what I'm saying. Um, whenever you're watching a game, particularly an important game, uh, I, I, grew, I went to OU, and so there's lots of important games in the fall that I watch. Um, but lots of uh, games, the, the more they build and the more hype that's around a game, the more nervous you are while watching it. And the closer it gets toward the end, sometimes the nerves and, and the tension building is just unbearable. So I had this professor in seminary, and he's kind of a quirky guy. He taught this class on Revelation, and he was saying it like this. He, uh, he went to UNC, so he's a huge basketball fan. But he says, I don't even watch sporting events live anymore. I can't watch them on TV. It's too much. It's too nervous. Um, what I have to do is tape them, and then the next day read the lines or now on the Internet, go, go home and see if they won or not. And if they won, and if I want to watch the game, I'll go back and watch it. He said, it takes all the nervousness out. And I can watch it and fill in the details of what happens, but I know the ending before it begins. He said, it's kind of how we have to look at the book of Revelation is that we know the ending is that Jesus wins. Jesus won when he resurrected from the dead. That's it. Satan is defeated at that moment. Satan, though he is at work in this world now, and he is on a leash, and he, he has some dominion in this world, he ultimately has been defeated. And so Revelation comes and kind of fills in the details of what that means for Jesus actually to win. And this passage comes and gives us the implications of this victory when we start to think about what happens after death. And even, even beyond that, what happens when the King, Jesus himself, comes back? Because all Scripture talks about that. It builds toward this time when Jesus will come back. His second coming. And what happens is he brings the kingdom with him as he comes down. And we'll talk about that in a second. But there are three things I want to talk about as we see, um, as we think about this final stage of history what I will call glory. The first is this. I want us to talk about the nature of glory. Secondly, I want to talk about the no mores of glory, the things that are no more in glory. And thirdly, I want to talk about the newness of glory. So let's talk about it. Um, as we begin to look at like, what it will be like for Christians, let's talk about the nature of glory. Okay, I don't mean physicality, the, um, the, the nature outside of the trees and all that stuff. What I want to talk about is what will be happening there. What will be happening there uh, in that new heaven and new earth. Well, the first thing we see is that there is exactly that. There's a new heaven and a new earth. 
a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, Brent, why is that a big deal? Well, we've been talking about one thing this semester. If we've been talking about one thing, it's this. is that God made a good world. He loved it. In the beginning, in Genesis, he said it's good, and it's good, and it's good. But then through the fall, it became not so good. It was fallen. It was hurt. And so he, he sent God, um, Jesus himself, he sent him to redeem this, to buy back or redeem what was lost in the fall. And then when Adam and Eve chose to sin in the garden, or when Adam and Eve chose to sin in the garden, everything was affected, and we talked about that. That our relationships break down. Inside, our relationship with God is severed. But also, the world itself, the physical world around us, is broken. And we have a hard time knowing what that means, except to know that things like pollution happen. And uh, devastation to the world are at work now, and earthquakes and tornadoes that kill. Last week, the tornadoes that came through here on Thursday night, Friday night, Thursday night, they killed 43 people before they were finished. That that kind of stuff will be, that is broken. And Paul says in Romans 8.23 that creation itself longs for redemption. That not just us, it says creation itself longs for redemption. So there's something going to be new about this. And one Greek dictionary says that the word new here means, and this is what it means, is that that which formerly was, is now swallowed up by something that is new. That which was recently, the recently made new thing, this new heaven, new earth, is far superior to what it was before. Okay, that it's better. It's new, it's better. What does that mean? Somehow what's coming is going to be superior to what we now experience. And that means this, that when you walk out into the world, and when we have these moments in the Grand Canyon or beautiful places where you go, even at Tulsa, I mean, you go like under the old you and the new you right now, it's beautiful with all the flowers and everything. And you have those moments where you look up with all the beautiful clouds and you say, God, this is amazing. And yet we have to look at it and know that it's fallen. And so what will the new heaven and earth be like? It will be better than that. I don't exactly know what that means right now in terms of that stuff, but it will be better. But don't just think that we'll be floating around for eternity somewhere. Okay? Because heaven, our goal, our ultimate destination as Christians, is not heaven. Heaven is not your home. You will not be souls forever flying in the heavens or wherever heaven is with Jesus. Because look what it says about the new Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ, the church. It comes down. It is coming down to dwell on this earth. That friends, future glory will be very earthy. It will feel a lot like this world feels, but redeemed, but better. That you won't be a ghost forever. You won't be a soul forever. Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, um, I'm sorry, in Ephesians 6, 12, uh, that the, the heaven itself, the heavens themselves, the heavenly places right now have evil spirits that, that battle in them. That God is, is battling Satan in the heavenly realms right now. That that will be no more. That heaven itself will be new, but that earth will be new also. Right here, John says that this new Jerusalem, adorned as a bride, ready for her bridegroom, her husband comes down. And that means that when your soul comes back to this earth with Jesus... The Christian teaching is this, is that our physical bodies will be resurrected and that they will be reunited to our souls and they will come down to the new earth. 
And friends, it has to be that way. The earth has to be new. It has to be without sin because our bodies and our souls at that point will be without sin themselves. We will have new bodies, glorified bodies. I don't know exactly what that means because we just don't know a lot from Scripture. But Jesus' friends recognized him and they could touch his, his hands. But somehow it was better because he was walking through walls and stuff. And that's what our hope is. That's what our promise is of our new body. So it's going to be better. It's new. It's better. All these things. John 5, 28 and 29 supports that. He says this. He says, Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear His voice, or hear, shall hear Jesus' voice, and they shall come forth. Their bodies shall be resurrected. He says, that they, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Okay, some people think that uh, people who don't believe in Jesus just stay dead forever. And that that's it. That that's their punishment is dying. That's not it. That's not what John's saying. He says everyone will be resurrected. Everyone gets a, gets, comes back from the dead. That's what he says. Some to, some to the resurrection of life, some to the resurrection of damnation. But that has implications then if you're not in Christ. If you're not with Jesus. That means that you will be living in hell. It will be a living torment away from God, apart from God's mercy and grace. And it won't be good. He goes on, and we'll talk about it in a minute. He talks about that as being like in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur. It will be bad. It will not be pleasant. You see, God's plan A from the beginning was always a physical world. And that's what He did with Adam and Eve. He created this world, and it was good. He told Adam, he said, fill the world, have dominion over it, subdue it, extend my kingdom to the ends of the earth. Make the whole world like the Garden of Eden. Make the whole world a place where I can dwell as the king in this physical earth. God wanted physical. He loved the physicality of it. And God doesn't scrap his plan when the fall happens. Right? He says it's not too far gone. Rather, He comes back and redeems it. And He takes what is broken in this world and He makes it new. That there is going to be a new earth. It's going to be a physical earth. So much so, and He loves it so much, the eternity will be on an earth. And when John sees this happen, he says in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. Look, God had been tabernacling. The word there for dwelling place means tabernacle. And so you start to think about the Old Testament. It was talking about the tabernacle, that God was in the midst of His tabernacle. When Jesus comes in John 1.14, it says Jesus came and dwelt or tabernacled among His people. In the new heaven and the new earth, God Himself will be tabernacle, will be dwelling with us. There's no more separation because when we go to be with God, He comes back with us. And basically restores what it was like in the garden with Adam and Eve. That he was with them in the garden. He was there present with them. And that's what it will be like in the new heaven and new earth. He will dwell in our midst. Friends, what Adam lost for us, that close and intimate communion with God, Jesus comes back and wins for us. And it's going to happen in this new heaven and the new earth. So what does this mean for us now? How does this affect our lives now and the way we think? What means this? It means that God cares about what happens on this earth. That God cares about the things that go on in this world. 
That He's not just a God who wants us to save souls and not work redemption in all other parts of society. No. He says, do go save souls. Evangelism is the holy war of our days. And He talks about that in Ephesians 6. Put on the sword or the whole armor and carry the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And do holy war, but it comes through peace. But it's also saying that this world matters. That you can't just go out and do in and with this world what you want. And I'm not going to jump on the bandwagon of uh, the crazy environmentalism activist stuff, but there's, there's something to be said about that. That we're called to be stewards of all that we have, and that means you can't just go out and do as you wish. That you're to be a steward of God's creation because God Himself loves this creation, though it's fallen. In the same way that God loves His humanity, though we are fallen. So you can't just go out and do what you want. It has implications for that. We're called to be good stewards of it. Using it, yes, but not abusing it. And if standing around singing songs or playing harps forever uh, sounds a little less than exciting to you, then this has direct implication for you. Because we're not going to be doing that forever. There will be part of that. We will be singing and praising God, yes. But friends, work was a pre-fall condition. That Adam and Eve were called to work before there was ever sin in the garden. And now for most of you all, that just put a big damper on heaven. And you're thinking, dang it, I was wanting to play golf all the time and just sit around and maybe play a harp if you like to play harps or something like that. Well, you're going to work. There's going to be things to do. Um, we're called, that's just who, God made us to be productive and to do things and to use our minds creatively and all these things. But the catch is that we won't experience the sinful side of that anymore. That our work won't rule us. We won't have the desire and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the compulsion to work 80 hours a week like we do now and like we've seen our parents do. We won't have the temptation to let our jobs be our idols or for the money they make to be our ultimate gods. No, work will be, we will, while we work, we'll be feeling like we're doing what we were made to do forever. That it will be what every single one of you wants now, and that's the dream job. Because I sit around and I talk to you and you're like, I just want to know what I'm supposed to do with my life. I know. I know. As a junior or a sophomore, I did too. I sat there in finance classes and thought, I don't think I'm cut out for this, but I really don't know what else I should do, so I guess I'll just keep doing it. I know you're right there. And you want to know, what is it that I'm made for? How am I wired? How has God made me? What does He want me to do? And friends, that, those kind of longings will be what you do forever. You work. And you'll be working with people uh, who love you and who care for you and who don't want to dominate you and rule over you. But you will work, and it will be good, somehow. <laughs> we don't really get that. Friends, it will be better, but it will be physical. Okay, It's not just out there floating. The new heaven and new earth are coming down. It will be physical. So that's the nature of glory. What are the no mores of glory? This passage gives us a framework for thinking about these things. We read in verse 1, it says, The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. It's saying that this earth, right now that you and I live in, which is full of brokenness and sin and frustration and longings and all of these things and injustice and oppression, that this earth, which is caused, in, not caused by sin, which is uh, infiltrated with sin, it will be no more. That this earth is fleeting. It is passing away. And it also says that the sea will be no more. And in those days in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, the sea was a place of confusion. In chaos, it was a place where evil and kind of things like that were said to abound. 
which makes sense in the beginning when it says the Spirit hovered over the sea. It hovered over the great unknown, the vast unknown, the chaos that was out there. It says that God brought order to chaos. Remember, order out of disorder. And what John's saying is the disorder will be no more. The sea itself and all that which is fearful will be no more. It will be gone. That earth, this earth is passing away. And because this earth with all of its sin and its sinful effects is passing away, there will be no more tears. No more tears. That's what it says right there. Let's reread verse 4. He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We love this verse, and we should. In times, it's the only thing we have to cling to is this thought that one day, someday, things won't be this way. Things will not always be this way. For those of us who have been through the depths of life, seemingly, and some of y'all have even recently, life is weighing down on you, it's falling down. And the difficulties are unbearable. Perhaps some of you, and even I know that some of you, are going uh, through family members who are dying. Family members whose bodies are decaying and rotting away right now. And you hear stories of children dying. Bo at Redeemer on Sunday was talking about that. He gave several examples of people in that church who have lost small children. Right? Things are broken. They're following down. Or for those of you who have been abused sexually, mentally, emotionally, whatever it is. These things that the, the old earth that is still very alive and well right now, it will pass away. It will be no more. The pains that are in relationships when the guy or the girl doesn't like you. Or when the company who you really wanted to work for just knew that you needed that intern when they don't hire you. That those things, the difficulties in this life will be no more. Perhaps even the tears that come with wanting to be different. With wanting to not struggle with what you struggle with right now. With your own sin and the way that it affects your lives and the lives of others. Tears that come from all of those things. The Bible promises these things will be no more. That our tears will be no more. Death itself was undone. We talked about that last week. That when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, that was the death of death. That death no longer has its sting for those who are in Christ. So death itself is gone. The tears are gone. And I don't care what Joel Osteen says. Our best life is not now. And I wish I could sell a trillion books with that title. Probably won't sell as much. But that's a lie. Our best life is not now. This life is hard. This world and the thing, it can have moments of glory. Moments where heaven breaks in, like we sang about, beams of heaven. Think about the sun coming down through the clouds, where you just see the rays so clearly. Every once in a while we experience that in this world. And we get tastes of what can be. When you're with good friends, or you have a great family moment or something. We get tastes of that. But friends, this life is hard. A lot of suffering, a lot of the time as we try and follow Jesus and trust in what He says is true. It is not easy. It is not easy. But there's something better going on here, even more beautiful, I think, in this passage. At the beginning of verse 4, look down. It says, He will wipe away every tear. He will wipe away every tear. God, 
the same God who created everything, who spoke and things came to be, who right now upholds the world in His hands, who gives us breath, who keeps the air mixture exactly perfect so it doesn't go out of whack, so we can continue breathing, so life can be sustained in this world. That very God is a personal and loving and caring God who will come and personally wipe away every tear. That the God of Scripture is a loving and caring and personal God. And He will wipe away the tears from your eyes. As, uh, as Sarah and I have been learning how to parent a two-year-old, which is uh, a new challenge every day, I think, um, I've noticed something really peculiar about what happens when Norcline does something wrong and we have to discipline her. Because she'll do whatever wrong, and then uh, I'll look at her, or Sarah will look at her and say, Norcline, you did this, we need to spank you for that, because you know you're not supposed to do this. Okay, and then she starts squirming because she knows what's coming. And then you give her a spank on the hand or on the butt or whatever. And she looks at you and she starts crying. And big hot tears come in her eyes and she starts crying. And it's awful. Your parents have said, this is harder for me than it is for you. That's true. Um, and as she's crying and the tears fill her eyes, she does this really peculiar thing and she comes close to you. She comes and wraps her, her arms around you and puts her head in your chest. It's almost like she feels the weight of what she's done. But she knows that we care for her. And she knows that we love her and that it's safe to fall into the arms of daddy or mommy. And it's second nature for her. But friends, that's not our experience right now. What happens right now with us is that when we sin, we want, we want God to be far away because we're embarrassed and we feel ashamed. But that will be no more. That will be no more because we will fall into the arms of a daddy who loves us who loves us and who is near and gentle and able to wipe away the tears. And just as Nora Klein surely is thinking, Daddy, why do you do this? Why do you hurt me like this? Why do you let me go through this? So we in this world at times think, Dad, God, why do you let me go through this? Why are you doing this right now? It could be easier. I've sat down with many of you and I said, I don't know why. Except perhaps to think that God is probably showing you how much you need Him. And how to turn the other way is not the answer. But friends, He comes one day and He wipes away the tear. And He says, it's okay. Because there will be no more tears. You will not cry anymore. You will not hurt anymore. That it's finished now. Your pilgrim days are over, Christian. Your time on earth is done. On this earth. Let's come home. Come home to the new earth. Look, I talk to many of you. I know what you go through. And it's the single great, one of the single greatest honors of my life that y'all let me into your stories. And that you tell me what's going on. And sometimes you don't even have to tell me. I can see it on your face to know that it's been rough. It's been a rough day or a rough week. And the burden of sin and of this world is coming down on your soul. And you're thinking, why? Why is God letting this happen? I don't know. I don't always know. But one thing we can always do is look toward that day when there will be no more tears. When there will be no more pain in this life. When the longings and the frustrations, the insecurities, the pains, the tears, the crying... The dads who, leaves mom, who leave moms, 
the husbands who leave wives, the cancers, all that stuff will be no more. There will be no more tears. And friends, that is what glory will be like. There will be no more of those things. And if you're a Christian, that is your future. In the Lord of the Rings, Sam turns to Gandalf toward the end and says, Gandalf, will all sad things come untrue? And for the Christian, yes, they will. All sad things will come untrue in glory. Thirdly and finally, I want us to look at the newness of glory. Because we see in this passage something about this newness. Let's look at verse 5. It says, And he who is seated on the throne, is talking about God, says, Behold, I am making all things new. And as we read this passage, we have to fight against the notion of thinking it's brand new. Because as, as individualistic Americans, we love brand new. We really do. We love it. Love it, love it. It's called um, GDP, and it fuels what makes this country so rich. Um, it's the reason why I have a perfectly functioning iPhone 3GS. It's why sometimes my heart really longs to have an iPhone 4. And I don't need it at all. It has FaceTime, and that's pretty neat, and the graphics I know are better and all that. And sometimes I find myself kind of complaining that I don't have it. Oh, I need it. I, I don't need it. But we love the idea of brand new, of what's best, of what's newest, and what's shiniest. Do you know that if you're in America in college right now, and I would probably could make the percentage even a little smaller, saying at a private university, that you're within like the top 1% to 2% of people who have ever lived, ever? We love the best. We love brand new. We love all of these things. And if that's not the kind of new it's talking about, which I suggest it's not, this passage isn't talking about brand new, nor is it talking about something that's new to you, like you get a used car, but it's, you call it new. It's talking about a whole different kind of new. Okay, there's a third kind of new that it's talking about here, and it means this. The Greek word there, it's the same word that's up above, but it has a different thrust here. It's talking about a new that brings all things into a newer and better condition. It's like renew. That when God says, I will make all, I'm coming to make all things new. I'm making all things new. What he's saying is, I'm not, I'm not starting over and scrapping everything. And we know that because he's going to take us and our souls and somewhat of our physical bodies and resurrect them. He's saying, I'm going to make them renewed. I'm making all things renewed. All things new. And that's what it's saying with new there. Um, a few years back, Sarah and I were living in Charlotte. And we were at a church there. And there was a, a lady named Monique who got up on... Easter, and she was giving a testimony of her own life, and she was talking about, she was, she's super talented um, with art and different kinds of things. She had a, a line of clothing and all sorts of things, super talented girl. And she was talking about the difference be- between a new creation and recreation. And she was talking about it as it, as it concerns houses. Okay, and if, you, if you're into houses at all, like old houses, you go into them before they're restored, and people who really get into this can go in and they see the potential they see the old, intricate tile work. And they see where the rafters were, though they've been covered up by ugly sheetrock. And they, they've seen all of what the, the original beauty was supposed to be. But through the years, it's been beaten down and dust has covered it. And they've put laminate flooring over the beautiful hardwood floors. And they've done all sorts of crazy things. But people come in and they redo this. They come in and they renew it. And Monique was talking about how when something is renewed, 
It's so much more beautiful than if you just went out and bulldozed it and started again. And it's so much harder also. Because in order to renew something, you have to know something about how it was made and how it was originally supposed to be and how it was supposed to function and how those tiles were supposed to look or why that window was there and not there and all of these things. You had to know something of the history of these things. Anybody can make something new. I learned how to build a house by watching YouTube. That is not a lie. Anyone can do that. But it takes great skill and care to come in and renew something. And that's what God is saying. That's what the scripture is saying. That's what this passage is getting at. Is that God who created this world, who created you in this world, and who is the Savior, the Lord, and the King, He knows you and your story intricately. He knows why you are the way you are right now. He knows the way your parents treated you or didn't treat you. He knows the things that those guys or those girls said in high school or perhaps in college or perhaps yesterday. He knows that those things weigh and they affect the way you see yourself. They affect the way you see this world. He knows your story. And so it becomes all that much more beautiful when He comes alongside you and He makes you renewed. And He takes the broken parts of you the things that both are, are, are part because we're victims, the things that, are, that other peoples have done to us, but also the things that come because we're victimizers, that we are villains, the things that we do, the sinful inclinations in our own hearts, that will be made new. But friends, He does it within who you are. That your best life is not now. Your best life is then because you will be the best you. Sin will no longer affect you. You will be renewed. Isn't that what you long for at your core? That someone who knows you in all of your faults, someone who knows you in all of your struggles, will come and say, yeah, I want you. And not only do I want you, I want to come and make you what you were supposed to be. I want to renew you. I'll close with this. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, Revelation is a book where the Apostle John, um, he gives us a snapshot of the things that are going to come. Right, And he kind of says, this is what it's going to be like. But the first three chapters, he's saying this is a letter to these churches. He's writing to particular churches in the first century. And he writes in this letter, and they were meant to pass it around. These different, the seven different churches in Asia Minor were geographically almost in a circle. And so this letter was supposed to float throughout that region, and people were supposed to read it. But friends, it wasn't just, John wasn't just saying, here, I'm going to give you a view of history... So you can just kind of uh, store that off for later. He's saying, no, I'm going to show you, I'm going to fill in some of the details so that you might be able to live now. Because those churches were struggling. They were struggling with what it meant to be a Christian. With what it meant to follow this Jesus who had lived and had died and had been resurrected and, and had now ascended and was no longer with them. They were struggling. That means it has meaning in the present world for us too. That Revelation isn't just a book that we kind of look at and just daze off into. That this has a great bit of meaning for us now. So we read in verse 6, And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Friends, in the end of this story, we are reunited with the King. 
We will be with Him forever. We will be His Son. God will be our Father like it was always supposed to be. It is meant to encourage those who are suffering right now. If that includes you, this is meant to encourage you. This is meant to, when things are unbearable, you can cast your eyes on what will be. You can make it. Hold on. Stand fast, it's saying. This world isn't all there is. Better days are ahead. And so if this is where you find yourself tonight, hold on. Hold on to Jesus. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel now. The Bible promises this world is hard. That there will be a better world to come. Keep the faith. But it wasn't only meant for encouragement. It was also meant for warning. It was meant for a warning. Because throughout Revelation, there are warnings given to the enemies of God. To those who do not align themselves with Jesus. To those who oppose Him and to go against Him. Verse 8 serves as really as one final warning. It says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and silver and sulfur, which is the second death. He's saying, Though you will die on earth, you will be raised, as we talk about. But it won't be good. Because the next death, the second death, will last for eternity. That you will continue to feel like death again and again and again. So much so that it's likened to a fire, a lake of fire and sulfur, and that will be your place forever. It is not pretty. And if you're in here thinking, no, no thanks, I'm going I'm to hold on to my own aut- autonomy. In my own fleeting sense of joy that I get with this world, I just want to tell you, I want to give you the same warning that Scripture gives you. It won't be pretty for you when the new heaven and the new earth comes. It won't be pretty. So what do you do? Will you come to the spring of water? The spring of water of life, he says. But you don't bring money. You don't bring your resume. You don't bring your goodness or the good things you try to please God with because you could never buy it. You could never earn that from Him. And that's why it has to be free. That you come with faith and that's all you can come with. Come to Jesus and find that water. Friends, in that water is life. And in that water is life after life after death. Which is our eternal life forever with the King. Let's pray. King Jesus, would you... Would you impress this upon our heart that this world is not all there is. Help us to believe it's true by your Spirit.